Greetings film fans and welcome to another episode of the following feature podcast. I'm your host Arthur Wilde and here we go another week another episode. This is episode number seven and um, one of the facts I learned early about when I first started doing podcasting or when I was learning about podcasting is that um, strange fact most podcasts fail by the time they get around to episode seven. Most people who do podcasts kind of give up or walk away or it just doesn't work out. And it's a weird number, which I wasn't really expecting, but episode seven apparently is it. So that's kind of been like a little bit of a target for me to begin with. And uh, I'm very proud to say here we are, episode seven, and um, there is no chance of me stopping this anytime soon. Um, As I say, we're in lockdown. All I can do is sit around and watch films, really. Um, And... There's no one here to listen to me waffle on about my opinions of films, so uh, that's where you lucky people come in. You're, you're, you're my cathartic release. That's what I keep calling this. Um, so, yeah. But here we are, episode 7. It's, it's, it's going well as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there aren't a lot of people listening, and um, if I can give a call to action, if you really do actually enjoy this podcast, please feel free to share and subscribe. Um, subscribing means that you're showing interest and it kind of boosts my numbers as far as like the way the algorithms on like Google and Apple and everything go. Um, but also the more people that are listening on a regular basis, the more chances that I have of actually monetizing this and, you know, being able to do this for a living. I mean, that would be an absolutely ideal world where I don't have to fill in application forms for ASDA. Um, none of those jobs are beneath me, but when you've been working towards something for such a long period of time and it just kind of gets taken away from you. It's pretty hard to kind of um, change paths. Uh, I'm still pursuing acting. I'm I'm working in the movie industry, of movie and film and TV industry. Um, And there might be a job coming up soon. I'm actually penciled in for a job. And if I get it, then I'll have a a couple of weeks of filming coming up next month, which is very exciting. Um, It's good to get back to work. I haven't done anything for about four months now. Um, I think the last thing I did was, um, there's a a show for ITV, a detective drama. I can't really mention the title of it just yet, but um, yeah, just doing a bit of background work in there. And of course, just before that, I'd just been to hair and makeup at Warner Brothers um, to work on this uh, big film that I was supposed to be on, still on at the moment. It's supposed to be April, May, June, maybe even July. And um, that didn't happen, but hopefully back to work soon. Uh, fingers crossed everything will start kind of falling into place now we're easing the lockdown which is great but at the same time we're kind of rushing it so it's probably going to backfire quite severely um and it's affecting all kinds of things as well i mean it's not just me uh all kinds of people are losing losing their jobs um and especially in the arts and entertainment world uh it has become a, a severe problem that this country does not support the arts and entertainment industry the people do but the government does not um, you look at the kind of money that's been um, donated and kind of raised and, and you know, in different countries, um, uh, in, in other European countries, like hundreds of millions have been given to um, the industry to make sure that it doesn't collapse during this lockdown. Um, to the best of my knowledge, in the UK, the government has given absolute zero uh, to the arts and entertainment industry. And we're seeing smaller production companies just collapsing, um, theatres that have been open for hundreds of years having to possibly close their doors forever um and not only that there's like concert venues and all sorts that are just absolutely just being gutted by this whole pandemic 
because this government doesn't see them as important. They're looking to open the pubs first. Like, that's the safest thing to do? Like, have you ever just thought about, like, where are the, the best collection of the most logical and reasonable people? Because I tell you what, it's not those that spend most of their times at a Weatherspoon's pub on a Tuesday. Do you know what I mean? Do you know that you know the kind of people I mean? Like you don't go to a Weatherspoon's pub for the um, social atmosphere. Uh, they've deliberately taken away like sort of the likes of like darts board and pool tables and jukeboxes and stuff. Because why create an atmosphere when you can just have more seats, and more people drinking cheap ale? I don't know. I mean, I've got a soft spot. I've got a bit of a, a sore spot with Weatherspoons because of their whole thing during the, the when the lockdown started. They were like, "Well, you know, we're not going to pay our employees. They can go and get a job at Tesco's." Um, anyway, you know, let's get a bit political. Let's let's just move on from that. I really hope the arts and arts and entertainment industry do get supported, and that the government do realise the importance of that. Because let's face it, what are we all doing in lockdown? When we can't go out and socialise, when we can't go to the pub or like sort of hang out with friends or go to the cinema, like sort of, you know, hit the McDonald's or anything like that, we sit at home and we watch movies, we watch TV shows, we listen to music, we read books. All of this is the art and entertainment industry. That's what's been keeping people sane through this whole thing. And it is not being recognised, it's not being supported, and it's going to suffer. So if you've really felt that, you know, during this whole situation, if you hadn't had all those films to watch on Netflix or Amazon, you know, if you hadn't had all those books to read, if you hadn't had all that art to appreciate that you've accumulated over the years and all that music that you listen to on, on Spotify or Amazon, um, there's all these different things that have been there for us during all this. And we need to make sure that we're there for them when this whole thing, you know, when it's all over and we all go back to normal. We need to make sure that um, it's not just the major chains of cinemas that open. Those independent ones need to reopen. Um, one thing I'm thinking of doing, uh, it's probably not going to be possible this year because, well, as I say, I've been out of work for four months and uh, Universal Credit is is um, embarrassing and pathetic uh, in regards to how this country supports people. Um, so financially, it's probably not going to be possible this year. But I am thinking now with this podcast, what would be really nice is if I did a bit of a tour of independent cinemas because there's a lot of them that I visited and I, I do like to check them out. Um, they're, they're great for like not only um, putting the customer first and being really focused on a, on a great experience, um, but they also tend to show films that wouldn't normally get, you know, the kind of screenings that they get. Um, so, yeah, I'm thinking uh, um, maybe do a tour and a podcast episode per cinema breaking down how it was established, who runs it, what's going on, what kind of films they show, a little bit about the history, a little bit about the experience of the cinema itself. Because um, one of the things I used to do, I used to work uh, for Lambeth Council in Brixton. Um, it was a strange period of my life. I was actually the street naming and numbering officer for Lambeth Council, which meant that I named all the streets in the Lambeth area. Um, I didn't even realise that was a job until I was actually at the interview. And um, it was it was a fantastic experience because a lot of times these large construction companies, they don't want to go through the fuss of having to, to name things and make sure that it fits all the protocols and policies and procedures and everything like that, all the requirements, because there's a lot of scrutiny um, in regards to um, making sure there's no name duplications in the area and uh, liaising with like the post office and the emergency services to make sure that, that 
they're completely fine with it. It's not going to cause any problems. Um, so it's quite a thorough and detailed job. But when a construction company doesn't want to take the responsibility for naming it and going through that whole fuss, making sure there's a historical connection, all that jazz, um, they'd just say, you do it. Um, so what we'd do is we'd, we'd basically we'd put together a name bank um, of just important figures from the area, people that were significant to the community and maybe didn't get the recognition they deserved. There's an opportunity there to honour them with a street name. So I think it's going to be there forever. Um, and when a construction company would say, like, kind of, you sort it out, I'd go to the name bank, or if um, if there wasn't anything suitable in the name bank, I would go to the Lambeth Archives, and I'd get to research um, the area in, in detail. And, you know, it was a wonderful thing, because sometimes you'd come across, like, a famous blacksmith from the 1830s who um, uh, built a school for orphan children or something like that you know some some amazing story that was just lost in the annals of history but you then get to bring back and make a part of that area and enrich the history of the area so it was a fascinating job um but i digress that's not the point that i'm trying to make the point that i'm trying to make is that across the street from lambeth town hall in brixton is the ritzy cinema and let me tell you it's a beautiful cinema it's, um, I think it was built at the turn of the last century, um, and it was pretty much annihilated during the Blitz. Um, it got bombed, and uh, it took a long time for it to actually be rebuilt, but it was rebuilt brick for brick, using all of the, the, the debris and everything that was there. They, they reconstructed this thing. It was an old theatre at the time. Obviously, it wasn't a cinema back in early 1900s, um, but it got repurposed as a cinema, and now it's, um, I, I, you know what? I should have checked this beforehand. I'm not even sure if it's still there. I'm not sure if it's still open. But it is one of those ones where it might survive because it's right in the heart of London and it's got a community there which is like huge, avid film fans. And I know that when I used to go there after work, it was um, it was really nice because it had these wonderful, big, comfortable seats that had like almost this shag pile um, fabric over it. Uh, and they had an open bar where you were able to like bring glasses of wine down and watch the film with a glass of wine, which is something I used to love doing until I developed a grape allergy. Yeah, I have a grape allergy. Just to clarify, that means I am allergic to grapes. It's not something that I've ever experienced before. Um, obviously, I don't even know why I'd say that. Um, but when I turned 35, it became a huge problem in my life. And uh, um, yeah, so Jesus, talk about tangents. Okay. So independent cinemas are something that I hope survives this lockdown. Um, and in an effort to support them, I am thinking about doing almost like a podcast documentary series where I visit various independent cinemas across the country and kind of learn about their history and promote them. Um, if you know of an independent cinema near you, somewhere that shows like little student films, um, one of those places you probably walked past on your way to like a Cineworld complex or something like that and thought, why are they showing Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Isn't that film, like, old as fuck? Well, maybe because they've got, like, sort of um, a really good projector and and they appreciate classic films from um, different eras. Um, if you see a cinema like that and you've walked past it a million times, when this lockdown ends, if you see them opening up, if, they open the, if they're able to open up their doors, please, I implore you, buy a ticket, go along and support them. Because it's one of those small things that if you lose those little bits of culture from your area, you'll you'll notice soon enough. And it's important that the, the next generation that comes along has things like that where 
they can look past the mainstream and and the big commercial conglomerates and and find something else something that they might not have seen be exposed to a bit of culture or you know art that might shape their vision in a way that they wouldn't normally have you know had um so yeah that's what i'm i'm hoping to do but we'll see for the time being though let's get on with the podcast and let's get on with the movie news now unfortunately we do have to start with some sad news um we have lost a couple of people over the last couple of weeks and i actually uh i kind of fucked up last week because i was heartbroken to hear about the passing of Serene home um he's a very very well respected british actor um who's done just countless classic films um, so many things that he's been involved with that turned out to be cult classics. Uh, for example, um, he played Ash, the android in Alien, which, I mean, that, that, I think that's the role that I first saw him in. Um, and absolutely mesmerizing. He was perfectly cast in that very cold, calculated character. And when it's, he's revealed to be an android at one point, you just think to yourself, that explains so much. But it's that kind of dedication that he gave to his, um, the characters that he played that really made him stand out he was also in um brazil i don't really know how to even start describing uh, brazil but um kind of eccentric dystopian um uh, i really don't know how to describe it we'll, we'll have to um, look into brazil a bit more in, in detail at some point i think i might have to review that just so i can really break it down and and do it the justice it deserves um he was also he played cornelius in uh, Fifth Element, um, Cornelius. Uh, that's just the way, um, what's her face? Oh my God, what's her name? Uh, Mia Jokovic. Yeah, that's the way she says it. Yeah. Multipass. Uh, sorry, my, my accent might sound terrible. She's not doing a very bad Indian accent in the film, I promise you. Um, she's an alien uh, who doesn't quite understand humanity. And yeah, but anyway, Ian Holmes in that, he plays the very um, twitchy, stressed out, um, priest Cornelius who he'd basically been um keeping up this tradition of this um old religious you know following um which I think even him over the over the like sort of the history of time he's come to take it as more of a kind of ceremonial thing rather than an actual prophecy that he needs to ensure is fulfilled when the time comes um and when the time comes he's well, he just kind of seems like he's reluctant and and not happy or not as prepared as he could have been. Um, yeah, fantastic performance, as he is in, in pretty much every film. Um, he was also uh, in Chariots of Fire. Um, he received uh, award nominations uh, for his supporting role in that film. Um, but I suppose a lot of people listening to this might know him best from the Hobbit films and, um, well, the Lord of the Rings films, where he played Bilbo Baggins. Or the old Bilbo Baggins uh, in the Hobbit films, of course, the younger version was played by Martin Freeman. Um, but yep, he was Bilbo Baggins, the the old and um, yeah, sometimes very very old version of Bilbo Baggins, um, which was quite uh, a thing for him as well, because in his early career in the beginning of the eighties, he actually played um, Frodo Baggins in the BBC radio play of the Lord of the Rings. So for him to come back and play Bilbo. You know, it was it was great, and he he was brilliant in that role. He really did kind of um, 
he he had this ability to convey so much emotion. He he said that I can't remember who it was that told him, but he basically was told that you know everything you everything a character feels and sees and understands and hates and loves and all the emotions can be told through the eyes. And if you can convey those emotions through the eyes, you can really um, connect with an audience. Now, if if anyone was the master of that, it was Ian Holm. I remember him in um, Zach Braff's. Uh, directorial debut um garden state um and he plays this very kind of detached father figure who um tries to hide the fact that he hates his son for being responsible for his mother's death um and i think a part of him wants to be able to forgive but there's a stronger part of him that will never be able to forget and I'm telling you all this, but he doesn't say any of that in the film. It's all conveyed through the eyes. And he really was, it didn't matter what film he was in, he would be a standout performance. And you, you knew as soon as his name was attached to the cast, like whatever role he's playing, it's significant. And maybe it doesn't seem that way in the script, but he'll make it so. So yeah, very sad to hear the passing of him. He was 88 years old and um, had a great career, apparently a great life, uh, married four times, five kids, um, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, we lost him a couple of weeks ago. And I meant to mention it last week, but, um, somehow I forgot. I don't know how I forgot, but I forgot. Um, and unfortunately he wasn't the only one we've lost. Um, as you may have heard this week, we lost the legendary filmmaker, Joel Schumacher, um, at the age of 80. Now Schumacher, um, he was more of a, he was, he was quite a mainstream director for the most part. Um, he did some incredible films. Um, for me personally, growing up in the 80s, he was one of those filmmakers that I got to know really, really well. Um, which, with such films as um, one of my favourites, The Lost Boys. Oh, God, I love that. I actually went to see the 4K restoration of that at the cinema recently. And it was beautiful. It's still a fantastic film. Um, and for me, it's it's the film that uh, Kiefer Sutherland says that Joel Schumacher was responsible for launching his career. Um, he put him in Lost Boys. Uh, then he used him again in um, Flatliners, another fantastic film. Um, and once more in, um, what's it called? Phone Booth, uh, which was a very original thriller with um, Colin Farrell and Keith Sutherland. Um, Joel Schumacher worked with Colin Farrell on several occasions, um, including uh, Tigerland, which we'll get to later on. Um but yeah, he also worked on uh, Falling Down with Michael Douglas about the uh, the guy who just basically one day he just has enough and he decides to go on a bit of a rampage um, and try to kind of restore some kind of order to, to society um, in his own little kind of tirade. Great film. You haven't seen it. It's one that, you know, the more you identify with it, the more you kind of wonder if your life is really going in the direction you hoped or thought it would be going in. So that's a very interesting film, a very good um it's a fun film, uh, but it gets quite introspective at times as well because you find this guy who's just had enough of so much and and the more he kind of goes through all the kind of tedium that pushes him over the edge, the more you kind of like review the tedium in your life and kind of think to yourself, am I am I really putting up with this? I mean, am I, am I a sucker for just carrying on in this bullshit rat race? Um, that's definitely something that I've felt in times like, as I've probably mentioned before, I walked out on a job at the foreign office because I felt a calling. I, I that's corny as fuck. Jesus, 
Um, I basically felt that like sort of I was wasting my life away. I was in my mid thirties um, and constantly taking on bigger and better office jobs just to try to catch up with my debt and kind of get on top of my actual finances and and restore some kind of balance to my life um, or the quality of life that I was I was trying to achieve. Um, but I just found myself disenfranchised in, in my mid thirties and. When I got a chance to, um, what was it? Uh, I, yeah, I got a chance to be uh, an extra. Or at least in my local paper, they put up an, uh, an advert for extras to be in Pan, the Peter Pan prequel film that was filming up at those hangars in Bedfordshire that I was telling, telling you about. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. They were, they were looking for people that could play possible pirates. And at the time, my hair was getting a bit long and scruffy and my beard was like sort of down to my chest. And I just, my mum suggested it to me and I was like, yeah, you know what? That might be a bit of fun be an extra in a film once um uh, and it never happened and that really disappointed me more like i mean at first it was supposed to be like a one-off experience but i was actually really excited about the possibility of of being on an actual film set um and you know work alongside the likes of like hugh jackman um but it didn't happen um and at one point like i was always bugging the agency going i'm still available still still available and at one point they go back to me and said listen um thanks for your enthusiasm but that film has ceased production now that's that, that that's gone so unfortunately we won't be checking your availability again and i gave it about a week and i sent them an email saying still available and they were like all right that's amusing and all but as we've mentioned that film's not happening anymore and i just basically pleaded with them i'm like you know i've got it i've got it i've got this this urge now to to be involved so if you need anyone at any time, I'm available. I, you know, I'm up for it. And they called my bluff. Uh, they said, "All right, I tell you what, someone's dropped out of a film tomorrow at Cambridge, um, at Trinity College. We need someone to be there for eight o'clock in the morning. Can you do that?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." And they're like, "All right, it's a World War One film, so um, just make sure you're at this location at this time." And um, oh yeah, be clean shaven. Now, at the time, I'd been growing. I mean, I'd always had some kind of a beard, but I've been growing out this long beard for about eight months and it was epic. I mean, it was, you know, as I say, it was down to my chest and it was um, it was something that had become a part of my identity. Uh, that and my long scruffy hair, which was kind of slicked back. Um, yeah, it was just a weird situation where suddenly I had to be clean shaven. And not only that, I had to have a short back and sides. So my image changed drastically, but then I suddenly found myself, you know, turning up to work on a film and it was it was quite embarrassing um I, I saw one of the ad's walking around i didn't know what an ad was at the time and i just looked lost and he was like are you an sa and i was like no i'm i'm an extra and he had to explain to me that sa is short for supporting artist and that's what an extra is to which i nodded and said mm-hmm, i'm an sa um so yeah uh just how to give yourself away on the first day huh um but anyway, I went up to wardrobe and I was supposed to be playing this uh, World War One soldier in uh, the film The Man Who Knew Infinity with Jeremy Irons and Dev Patel. Um, and yeah, I got dressed up in, in the uniform um, and it was kind of interesting because it took about 20 minutes for these uh, wardrobe ladies to get the whole uniform on, on me properly. And when it came to putting the hat on, I have an, a, a double XL size head. And the hat didn't fit, which is something that I've had to get used to. Um, but because the hat didn't fit, it meant the whole costume didn't work, which meant the character didn't work. 
And I was in a situation where I thought to myself, this is not going well. I've only, this is my first five minutes in the world of movies. And I think I'm about to get sent home. Which was just hugely disappointing. But when the casting director came in and, and the wardrobe lady said, this is the problem we have with this guy. We don't really know what to do. They just looked across at another guy who had a similar build and a similar age. And they're like, stick him in the uniform uh, and get this guy to just be in pyjamas and give him a wound, put him in a bed. And he's an injured soldier now um, because we were filming um, at Trinity College, um, on the actual, which is the actual location that was used. Um, this, this film was about a, a mathematician that came over from India during the First World War. And the struggles he had being accepted um, and being understood, um, uh, not just by his peers in in, uh, academia, but um, as an Indian man in England in the uh, the early, uh, like 1916, I think it was. Um, It was a guy that that really had a lot of problems, but he basically was the mathematician that discovered the possibility of infinity. Um, and how to best explain it and, and you know, use it in uh, mathematic equations to solve some of the big mysteries in the world. Um, so it's a true story. Um, and to, to really kind of tell the story properly, they actually used Trinity College in Cambridge, where he, where he went to uh, study and become a, eventually become a fellow. Um, and the, the, the college during the First World War was actually used as a field hospital. So using um, actual photographs of how it was all set up, they recreated the actual field hospital that was used, um, which was something I learned about by accident. There was one time when I was on set and I was just stood around watching people act. And a guy came over that was in jeans and t-shirt and he was like, it's amazing, isn't it? And we got to talking about like sort of how realistic everything was. And um, I was kind of surprised because he was very, very knowledgeable for what I, I believed he was just like, a grip or like a best boy or like gaffer or some kind of one of these guys that you know um one of the hardest working people on set um but for some reason was just doing nothing at this point and i I got a bit curious and i'm like so so how do you know so much about this then if you're just part of the crew and he revealed to me that he wasn't actually part of the crew at all but he was um a history professor at cambridge university uh, and it was one of those weird situations where, like, he'd been talking to me about the history of Trinity College in the First World War and everything that had happened and how it all came to be um, for, like, a good half hour or so. And um, when I was called to set and, like, sort of we said our go- goodbyes, it kind of dawned on me, like, I've just had a one-on-one lecture from a history professor at University of Cambridge. That felt like a bit of a privilege. But I digress. I mean, basically... Um, the experience of being like, put, I mean, I went from one of the most uncomfortable costumes in the world. It was an authentic World War One uniform, um, which was m- mostly made from Hessian and Brillo pads, I think, um, some razor wire. And I believe part of it was on fire. I don't know. It felt like that. Um, anyone that's actually worn a World War One uniform will, will understand exactly where I'm coming from, especially if it's authentic. Um, very uncomfortable. So when they took it off, I was like, well, that's kind of a relief. And especially when they handed me a pair of cotton pyjamas, a pair of slippers, and a nice big woolly gown uh, robe to wear. And they were saying, just go find a bed and lie down. And I was like, this is my... You're going to pay me to do this? 
And it didn't quite dawn on me like sort of what was happening until I got sent down to hair and makeup because um, they had to make me look look injured. And uh, the, the makeup lady, it was my first experience in hair and makeup. And it, uh, the, the girl was really lovely. And she basically um, put this like bruising and scarring down the side of my face to make it look like I'd had some kind of, I don't know, head wound or something. And there was one moment where I was um, sat in hair and makeup and just thinking about like, kind of like, wow, am I really, is this really a, a movie? Is this really like professional production? And I suddenly heard this very um, distinguished British accent alongside me um, saying uh, something along the line. It was just saying to one of the um, assistants, like kind of, would you find me somewhere that is able to deliver flowers this afternoon? And to which this lady was like, of course. Um, can I get anything else for you, Jeremy? And he was like, no, no, no that'd be quite all right. And it was just dawned on me, like I looked just out the corner of my eye and like two seats to my right was Jeremy Irons. Now, remember, this is my first time like being anywhere near a film set. And to have an Oscar-winning actor sat just to my right, um, not only with that, but what I admire, maybe not for his, you know, personal opinions, that whole thing he said about... Um, same-sex marriage and how he thought it might be uh, a reason for um, like a, a father could marry his son to avoid paying inheritance tax and stuff like that. Just a really, really weird situation uh, where, where he he threw up these hypotheticals regarding same-sex marriage that just very, um, I don't want to say ignorant, I just think he was very confused about how the whole situation worked um and he upset a lot of people from that i'm, I'm not really sure what the outcome was from that he's still working in the industry so i i guess he hasn't upset enough people to um be a victim of the whole cancel culture um but yeah that whole experience was was huge for me um and it you know it's i'm not really sure how we got onto that subject <laughs> i'm just thinking about how um yeah. Oh, well, I think it was on the subject of falling down. Yes, falling down. Yeah, oh, Jesus Christ. Wow, that was a tangent and a half. Okay, so falling down, uh, a guy just has enough one day. And I kind of feel like that's similar to how I ended up leaving um, a possible career in finance to try to pursue a movie career. Um, something which was, I, I got kind of laughed at at first, but... Um, apparently, like, sort of opinions have changed and people have seen me in, in movies and TV shows and and they now realise that not only am I serious, but I'm actually getting somewhere. I'm not saying that, hey, watch out, guys, I'm the next big thing. It might never happen for me. But regardless of any success that I may or may not have, my happiness is is definitely there. It it's it's definitely made the quality of life that I I lead better. I'm not financially better off, but as far as my soul's concerned, if that's not too pretentious, I feel because they say work is food for the soul. Um, bad work is poison for the soul. So what I'm doing right now is is um it's it's improved my quality of life and. I'm like Michael Douglas's character. Uh, I'm not taking it anymore. And, you know, I'm just going to move on. Um, Joel Schumacher, 
great filmmaker. Um, yes, he also made uh, the Batman movies, uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which have been critically panned and rightly so. They are they are pretty corny. They are pretty ropey. Um, and I just I, I tried to watch Batman and Robin again the other day, and I just it was actually worse than I remembered. I mean, it's really weird. There's no real script. It's just a series of, like, corny one-liners over and over and over again. Um, and just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird film. Especially as it's supposed to be, like, you know, progressing on from Tim Burton's Batman. <coughs> Excuse me. Um... But yeah, the, the 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 truth was that when uh, Schumacher was still was actually developing the Batman films, he wanted to do an adaptation of Frank Miller's Year One, um, which is a much darker, grittier film, and really would have been um, a great way to kind of continue on the story from what Tim Burton had done, um, keeping that kind of um, darkness and and like sort of you know like grounded reality of the, the, the murky world of, of Batman. Pardon me. Unfortunately, the studio did get involved and they did turn around. Oh. Sorry. My breakfast is repeating on me. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the studio did get involved and uh, they did turn around and say, listen, we want a family film. We want something that's bright and colourful and funny and, you know... Something that's kind of, you know, just a mindless family action comedy film that's a bit more reminiscent of the TV series. You know, the old Adam West one. Kapow, etc. And so that's what he ended up doing. And, um, you know, apparently they had a lot of fun making the films, but I don't think those are the films that Schumacher originally wanted to make. Um but, you know, he, he was a, a director that, that took chances. Um, he even famously did the uh, the film version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. Um, which is one that kind of took me by surprise. I didn't even know that existed until, I think, about 10 years ago. Uh, I remember my friend put it on and he's like, oh, this is one of my favourite musicals of all time. And I'm like, first of all, you like musicals? Because, you know, this is a guy who was... Um, yeah, just just not a musical fan. And when he put it on, I was like, "Well, that's that's a bit strange." And then I saw the the things coming up, and it was like starring uh, Gerard Butler and Patrick Wilson. And I was like, "Wait, what the fuck is this?" Directed by Joel Schumacher. I'm like, "Really?" I just yeah. Andrew Lloyd Webber said that he 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 wanted no one else to do that film um, after he saw The Lost Boys and how Schumacher used music in that film inspired him to um, try to get him on board to make the film version of Phantom of the Opera. Which he did, but he did many things, and um, we'll get on to one of my favourite films, Tigerland, a bit later on. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, at the age of 80, we've lost Joel Schumacher. Um, now, moving on, um, uh, one of the things I want to mention as well, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying making this podcast, and it's really been a lot of fun for me. It's been something that I've developed into really, really quickly, because... You know, at first, I, I just kind of waffled, and I, I know I'm still doing that to a certain extent, but it's kind of reawoken this old radio DJ in me, um, and I'm really liking the whole aspect of, of being a host, of being a presenter, and, you know, 
allowing myself to kind of get into that that kind of a role um and in the meantime i I mean it's something that i've never done before so i've been listening to other podcasts in the hope to find some kind of to get an idea of just what the industry is like in regards to film-based podcasts and um whilst a lot of them are i don't know i don't know they don't quite pique my interest as much i mean obviously i really love uh, uh fat man beyond with kevin smith and mark um bernardin um, but one of the other ones that I've discovered recently, which I, I really do enjoy, is Hidden Gems, a film podcast. Um, Noel and Lynette that work on this podcast, they are very informed and knowledgeable uh, people that I think they work as, uh, as writers um, in, in uh, film and TV. And, um, but they have a great knowledge of films and they have a great understanding of, uh, you know, the structures of films and, and the story and the narrative and... and a history of the actors and the performances and everything like that. And what they have is a very informed um, and enjoyable podcast. They basically take a film each uh, and break it down. And um, they try to pick films that people would uh, maybe not have seen. They were like little indie films. Or maybe they were like big films that just didn't do well at the cinema and didn't get the kind of traction they deserved. Um, so they try to bring focus on films like that. And to you know a lesser extent, that's kind of what I do as well. Um, as I say, like I try to review films that I think you should be watching, but I always try to make sure there's one in there that's a hidden gem of some sort, or just a, a um, an indie film that I I feel needs more promotion um, than it's than it gets from the mainstream um, you know channels. Um, but yeah, if you want to check out another podcast, uh, I thoroughly recommend theirs. Um, they're based in New York, uh, Nolan Lynette. They again, their podcast is called. Uh, Hidden Gems, a film podcast. And you can find it on Apple. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Podbean. I'm sure you can find it on Google as well. Every Everywhere that you'd normally find, like my podcast, for example, you'll find their podcast as well. Um, and I've really enjoyed like speaking to um, Noel about, uh, you know, his uh, love of films. And um, we're, we're um, one of the films that he mentioned in the latest podcast, which you should go and download right now, is uh, Man on Fire, which is... Um, uh, Denzel Washington film made by Tony Scott, I believe. Um, but yeah, absolutely classic film. I'm not going to talk about it right now because I suggest you go over there and you listen to um, Noel break it break it down. He does a great job. And um, uh, yeah, he's made me think about that film. I haven't watched it in a long time. I think since it came out, actually. So I might have to stick that one on. Um, but yeah, Hidden Gems, check it out. Uh, now, in other movie news, and um, let's face it, we haven't really kind of touched on any actual movie news yet. Um one of the most interesting bits of gossip coming out this week that's really blown my mind is Michael Keaton is returning as Batman. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? This is so cool. If you don't recall, Michael Keaton was the first proper film Batman. Yes, I know, I know there were, the Adam West series did have a film technically, but this is the first like cinema, um, you know, cinematic outing for Batman. And the first one that wasn't really aimed at families or children. Um, uh, Tim Burton's, I think it was 1989 Batman film and the subsequent uh, follow-up Batman Returns in 1991, 1992, um, saw Michael Keaton take the role as Batman. And when it was announced, nobody was happy about that. It seemed like he was a terrible choice for casting. But when the film came out, Everyone changed their mind because he was miraculous in that film. He was absolutely fantastic. He had the 
the this dynamic edge that uh, Bruce Wayne needed, um, as well as being like sort of the menacing uh, terror to criminals that Batman really is. Um, he really did a fantastic job of the, the 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 role, and Tim Burton did a fantastic job of the film. It really was one of those standout films that you didn't expect it to be as good as it was. I mean, he even got Prince to do the soundtrack. Okay, it wasn't great, but come on, man. I mean, who, you know, to pull off something like that these days, it's just, it's just not on. It's not going to happen. It's very rare that you get a really good recording artist that says, like, yeah, I'll do the whole fucking soundtrack. That sounds good. Um, I think the closest we got to that was um, Kendrick Lamar working on the Black Panther soundtrack. Great stuff, but I wish they'd let him do the whole damn thing because... Yeah, that would have been interesting. Um, you know, I remember like sort of Queen used to do soundtracks where they used to like just do a whole album themed around the story. Um, they did like Highlander and they did Flash Gordon. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I'd like to see that again. I think I'd like, uh, who else would like to see some kind of rock band or something doing a full soundtrack for a movie? Um and what is your favourite as well? I know a lot of people are immediately going to say Quadrophenia by The Who. I'm not a huge Who fan. No, come back. Come back. Listen. Listen. It's just because I think I was I grew up as more of a rocker than a mod. And um, it's one of those things where, like, that can affect you quite early on in life. Where you're almost groomed into, like, not liking a certain thing. I'm sure, you know, the Who have done remarkable things in the music industry, but I don't know. I don't know. It just, it wasn't my thing. And it never really has been. Great film, though. Great film. Uh, what's his name? Um, Phil Daniels. Great in there. And Sting as well. Um, yeah. But let's not get into that right now. Um, yeah. So Michael Keaton's returning as Batman um, for the Flash Flashpoint movie. Now, if you don't know what Flash or Flashpoint is, why are you listening to this podcast? I'm only kidding. Right, so Flash is one of the DC characters that you might know from the Justice League. Um, you might actually know him from his TV series called The Flash, which isn't this Flash, it's another Flash. Although, these Flashes did meet. I'll get onto that in a second. Basically, um, you know we've had like sort of... Uh, Batman versus Superman, we've had Wonder Woman, we've had Aquaman, uh, we've had Justice League. Um, we're supposed to be having a lot of these kind of DC expanded universe films, but it kind of collapsed in on itself with more of the studio interfering with uh, Zack Snyder's vision. Um, like just basically, uh, they took a, a bucket of soapy water to his freshly painted canvas and then blamed him for putting something out that was smudged. It was quite appalling. Um, and of course, they're rectifying that now with Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is coming to HBO Max. Um, but The Flash was supposed to get his own standalone movie as well. And it's kind of one of those things that's been put off again and again and again and again and again. Um, which is a shame because Ezra Miller did a fantastic job as The Flash. Um, not really sure what happened to the whole situation with him apparently choking out a fan. Um, I've seen the footage and it looks like it is kind of semi-staged and I think... It's one of those situations, and it's, it's something that um, some UFC fighters pointed out once that I thought was quite interesting. Fans will often ask to, like, to be involved in something with you. Like, with, with the UFC fighters, they said that fans always want to see if they can take one of your punches. And and it seems like it's all in, in good fun and good-natured and 
Um, then after the fact, they try to turn around and say that they were assaulted. Um, and the whole thing becomes a complicated mess. So I don't know if um, Ezra Miller was goaded into doing something that he didn't really... He, he didn't think... He felt was innocent enough, but in hindsight could be made to look a lot worse than it actually was. I don't really know what happened with that. That's a very weird situation. Um, but it looks like they are going ahead with the, the Flash movie. Um, and I believe they're going ahead with the Fantastic Beasts 3 film. So Ezra Miller still working. I guess I guess that situation is okay for now, but we will see. The Flash movie, basically what they decided to do is a story from the Flash comics called Flashpoint. And this is a famous story that was actually told in the, the um, Flash TV series as well. Um, when the Flash actually goes like uses the speed force to go back in time to save his mother, creating a chain, uh, like a chain reaction effect that um, causes the future to to fall apart and different realities and and universes um, collide and intersect and and the whole thing is looking to fall apart. Um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 a classic storyline, and they're looking to make Flashpoint the movie, and this is a a, a really interesting idea because it really kind of means that they can do whatever the fuck they want. Um, and uh, something that was actually posed um, by uh, Kevin Smith and Mark Bernardin in um, their their podcast, Fat Man Beyond, um, uh, or Fat Man and Batman, I think it was known back then, they posed this possibility of having Michael Keaton come back as um, old man Batman um, in a kind of Batman Beyond uh, type scenario in Flashpoint. And lo and behold, here we are, I think about four years after they made that prediction, and they're doing exactly that. And while some people wondered if he was going to be man in a chair Batman, like wearing a polo neck and just not really being involved in action, that's been dismissed now as we've, the, the um, uh, filmmakers have confirmed that he will be in full costume. He will be Batman. Now that's a very interesting proposition. I mean, are we going to see him in the actual costume from the 80s Batman? Um, are they going to evolve that costume somehow and give us a, like like old man Batman version? Is he going to be in some kind of exoskeleton uh, as we're seen in other iterations? It's it's hard to say, but very exciting. Michael Keaton is a hot property at the moment. Uh, coming off films like, um, well, he played in the Vulture in the Spider-Man films, but also uh, in Tim Burton's Dumbo, which is where I met him. Shh. Um, and also uh, a film which I felt was very understated. And think, I'm thinking of actually reviewing it as um, a hidden gem soon. The founder, in which he plays um, the guy behind McDonald's and how that franchise came to be what it is today. as a very, very interesting film uh, and a very interesting performance from him. Uh, very much enjoyed that. Um, so very interesting to see what will happen with him. Um, yeah, first time in the bat suit since 1992. So as soon as I hear more about that, I'll let you know. Um, now, one thing we need to talk about that is a bit of a theme on this show at the moment, is films being pushed back. Uh, now, the uh, the current situation is this. Christopher Nolan's Tenant... Tenant... Still, still saying Tenant. Um, it's been pushed back again. <laughs> August 12th now is when it's going to be released. But watch this space still again. Because who knows... Um, it was, you know, the last time I spoke to you, it was uh, coming out in July 31st, August 12th now. So that's another two weeks being pushed back. And um, uh, uh, Kamal, uh, oh, Jesus, no, I shouldn't have, I should have tried to say this name without practice. 
Um, Kumile, the actor from uh, Silicon Valley, who's going to be in, uh, who was in Stuba and stuff like that, and is going to, who's in Lovebirds, and he's going to be in the Eternals movie. You know the one I'm talking about. Um, I'm just sorry, I'm not brave enough. I haven't uh, practiced saying his name out loud. I don't think so, uh, and I don't have it written down in front of me as well. So I'm not going to just hazard a guess. That's that's a landmine I ain't walking through. Nah, nah. All right, okay. Um, but he was, um, he's the fantastic uh, tweet or Instagram post the other day where he was talking about portraying a dystopian future where people still aren't sure whether or not they can go out or stay in, go to the beach, stay at the pub, don't go to the pub, stay at the beach. Um, at the bottom, he just put uh, the year is twenty twenty nine and Tenet has been pushed back another two weeks. Because that's how it feels. Uh, it's constantly just hopping back, 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 back. And God knows, will we see it this year? Hopefully. We have to see it at the cinema because it's a Christopher Nolan film and he makes cinematic movies. That is one that I want to see at the IMAX. Um, I went to see um, The Dark Knight at the IMAX in, um, uh, in London, in Waterloo. And it was this is the early days of IMAX as well. And... The one uh, in in London is it was at the time the biggest IMAX screen in Europe, and it was a cinematic experience that just it, it changed cinema for me because I realised what was actually possible with the new technology. Um, so now that I have a, a an IMAX literally on my street, oh my god, I, I'm talking like it's a ten minute walk for me, so I'm very happy about that. Um, so yeah, really want to see ten at the cinema. Really want to see it at the IMAX. Um, other films pushed back, no surprises, really. Mulan has um, been pushed back. Still wants to be one of the first films out, but that's going to be August 21st now, so that's going to come out after Tenet, although we'll see. Um, Bill and Ted, unfortunately, has also been moved back to August 28th. Um, and A Quiet Place 2, which I forgot about, actually. I was thinking, like, didn't that come out? Oh, it was on the brink of being released. That's now been pushed back to September 4th. So, we'll see. Um, as I say, this is an ongoing thing. Uh, we're, we're figuring things out as we go along and hopefully we'll get to see some films by the end of the year, but who knows? Um, my next bit of news is about Henry Cavill, who's actually signed on to be, um, he signed a multiple movie deal to play Superman. Now, as you might remember, he, um, after the, uh, Justice League film flopped, they, they looked like they were going to go in a completely different direction. Um, Ben Affleck said that he was walking away from his Batman film uh, because he couldn't make it work. Um, and other directors are coming with other ideas and he decided that to step away meant there was a better chance of a better Batman film being made than him trying to force through his idea. Which is a shame because he's he's a big Batman fan um, and I think he really would have, you know, done a lot with it. I, I really liked him as Batfleck as well. Um, you know, he wasn't really given great material to work with, but... I thought he did a decent job. Um, but yeah, Henry Cavill signed back on. He wasn't supposed to be returning as Superman, but now he is. Um, and whilst there isn't really talk of a, a standalone Superman film being made, there are apparently several films that he's going to feature in, in a kind of, not always a cameo role, but as like a a smaller character in the plot. Um but yeah, there is talk of the possibility of there being a Man of Steel 2. And um, if they can get Zack Snyder in, yeah, might be worth a watch. But I don't know. Maybe there's other people that can do other interesting things with it. Um, 
like uh is it patty jenkins that made the wonder woman films yeah she might do something interesting with that um but i don't know we will see uh in other news um oh yeah the other interesting thing about that was he revealed that bit of information whilst being interviewed by patrick stewart for variety magazine so um you can check that out it's it's up online i think it's on youtube you can catch it um very interesting interview um now my next bit of inf- um news is probably the biggest bit of news this week so you know dramatically save it to the last um pirates of the caribbean is coming out um what well, a, par- a, a new pirates of the caribbean film's being made as kind of a reboot um which is crazy so soon um after the fifth one came out has it been five now or four salazar's revenge was the last one was that that was five i think anyway um the sixth film is going to be a reboot they're not sure if um johnny depp's going to be involved in it yet um he might be involved but at the moment that's not what they're working towards uh, so there might be a different actor playing uh captain jack sparrow which is a name i cannot say without think- hearing michael bolton sing it if you don't know what i'm talking about um look up michael bolton and the lonely island that's all i'm gonna say you'll thank me later so yeah we're gonna get a new car- car- pirates, of- pirates of the Caribbean. what the hell pirates of the caribbean film um but here's the thing we're hearing more about the spin-off more than we're hearing about the actual reboot because it's been confirmed that margot robbie has signed on to be in a pirates of the caribbean film as the lead in a female-driven pirates of the caribbean spin-off and she's partnering up with um christina hodson who wrote the birds of prey movie so those two are getting back together again and um yeah i say the birds of prey film was quite good um had some interesting moments in it but um I don't know. It wasn't as good as I hoped it would be. Um, but it was enjoyable. It was definitely better than Suicide Squad. Uh, but yeah, I think everyone agrees the most enjoyable part of Suicide Squad was Harley Quinn. Um, so Margot Robbie, yep, she's coming back. Um, coming back. Well, she's she's entering the Pirates of the Caribbean cinematic universe, um, but in what looks to be a bit of a spin-off film. Um, so more about that as it comes through. Uh, but... Um, one thing I can say about the actual reboot, uh, which is very exciting, um, Craig Mazin, who's the uh, Emmy Award-winning writer behind the Chernobyl uh, limited series that um, was on recently, he's the one writing the script for the reboot. So that is a very interesting element and a reason why we can uh, actually possibly anticipate a, a better movie than we expect. But anyway, let's go on to our movie reviews because... We're already running over. This is going to be probably the longest podcast I've done so far. But um, yeah, I'm not going to wrap these reviews up in five minutes. So don't worry about that. You're just going to have to put up with a slightly longer podcast this year, this week. Um, and maybe I should think about extending this to about 90 minutes because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through stuff and I'm cutting myself short sometimes. And I don't know. Anyway, you know, tangents as well. Jesus, how many of those? Don't turn that into a drinking game. I'm, I'm absolutely serious. There's too many tangents. You will die. All right? Let's just... Okay. Film reviews. Artemis Fowl. Now, directed by Kenneth Branagh and based on the hugely successful series of novels by Owen Colfer. Oh, of all the bits of his name that I was going to get wrong. Um, 
Owen Colfer uh, wrote the um, the Artemis Fowl books, and with a wealth of established story to work with and a rich and complex world to explore, not to mention it's being made by Disney, who have all the monies in the world, this should have been the easiest film franchise to make. Uh, boasting a cast with names such as uh, Colin Farrell and Judi Dench, it was not lacking talent either. So why was this so awful? Well, with a script um, so exposition heavy, it's hard to understand what's going on at times. Or more to the point, why things are happening. Every character is so flawed and flimsy you wonder how they achieve anything. The lead actor, Ferdia Shaw, delivers a wooden and almost lifeless performance as the titular character. At no point do we really get a feel for who he is or why he acts the way he does. His vast intellect is conveyed with him being constantly patronising and somehow we're supposed to believe that the people side with him because of his charm and warmth. Nah, no. Most of the dialogue is bland and the plot is completely nonsensical. It's such a mess, it makes you really scratch your head. Who approved this and what were they smoking? Visually, at times, it's very beautiful to watch and I have to say well done to the costume design, hair and makeup and the cinematography. The CGI is a bit ropey, especially for Disney with such a huge budget. And I'm telling you, it's one of those films that you, you kind of finish watching you thinking, that shouldn't have been as bad as it was. There was too much write about the film for it to be so wrong i mean with the cast they had with uh, it's not like they had to come up with a story that might work they had a story that worked um owens put out nine of these books and they're massively successful so he had the, you've got source material there which is ready to go you don't have to use much imagination because the world that he's created was beautiful enough and popular enough and exciting enough that it was, it was already a success. Now, with that, you get a backing of a Disney that want to produce it. You get Kenneth Branagh to direct it. And you even get Colin Farrell and Judi Dench to take what... Well, Colin Farrell's role is much of a supporting role, really. Um, and Judi Dench's could be described as that to a certain extent. Um, yeah, it's just... I don't know, it was painful to watch at times. Um, and it just, it just seemed to be going nowhere. Uh, and there are spectacles and there are moments of, of what I guess was supposed to be drama and intensity, but it falls flat. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's available, uh, it's, instead of being cinematically released, it's gone straight to VOD on Disney Plus. And, uh, you kind of wonder if that was, uh, a strategic move by the people who actually watched the film and said, if we wait to put this out the cinema, we're going to lose a lot of money because it's shit. So, yeah. If you've got Disney+, Plus, feel free to give it a try. But um, if you end up switching off after 20 minutes, I understand. If it wasn't for the fact that I had to review it for this fucking podcast, I would have switched off straight away as well. It's just... It's, it's, it's not just a disappointing film. It's, it's surprisingly disappointing. And for a studio of that size, with that kind of talent and um, that kind of money behind it, that's a hell of a miss. It's a swing and a miss. But I'm talking about that player's gone 360 and ended up knocking out the, the umpire. That's how bad it is. Um, so yeah, our next film is uh, Gemini Man. Now, Gemini, in, in Gemini Man... I don't know. In Gemini Man, Will Smith stars alongside Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Clive Owen, Benedict Wong, 
and Will Smith. Directed by Ang Lee, this was in development for about 20 years and had many, many actors attached to the lead role. I'm telling you, I'm not going to list all of them because it's remarkable. Um, and this is people who weren't just like rumoured, but attached. Like negotiation taking a place and, and they were attached. Uh, so this includes the likes of Robert De Niro, Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, Michael B. Jordan, Mel Gibson, Clint Eastwood, and Denzel Washington, to name but a few. Now, it tells the story of a hitman trying to retire who finds himself on the run from the government and facing off against a younger clone of himself. Not wanting to, cli- not wanting to kill the younger version of himself uh, without getting some answers, uh, this film is a cat-and-mouse action uh, extravaganza that starts off with a lot of promise but doesn't really deliver. Now, with an actor as charismatic as Will Smith, what better way to guarantee a hit movie than one where you can cast him twice? As it builds, you slowly come to realise that this isn't going to be half the film it could be. Instead of the thriller about two deadly assassins, one young and fast and the other older but smarter, you expect the story to unfold in a fight to the death, but in a twist of the narrative, this becomes more of a drama about patriarchy and redemption. It repurposes the antagonist as a protagonist in a way that weakens the story so much that it leads to an inevitable plot twist at the end. Uh, And whilst the CGI is groundbreaking, it gets overused to the point where some of it just looks rushed and half-arsed. Towards the end of the film... It's so janky that it, it's almost laughable. Uh, as I said, it gets off to um, it gets off to a, a decent start, but it gets lost in self-indulgent philosophies uh, and unnecessary and unpredictable, unnecessary and predictable plot twists. Ang Lee brings it. Um, uh, he brings a beautiful uh, um, look to the action and, and the camera work, and he's renowned for that. But like his Hulk movie, it's overcooked and it's lacking heart. Now, as I say, like when I first started watching this film, I actually thought. This is good. I like it. I like where it's going. I like the pace of it. I like the the characters and and the relationships and the dynamic between them. It really has something. And as um you know as he as he starts to get kind of um, hunted down and and the action starts to ramp up, you think to yourself, this has the makings of a great film. And then it just it gets distracted by its its main MacGuffin. Um, this whole need to kind of show old Will Smith fighting young Will Smith. At first, it's hugely impressive. I mean, it's so spot on. It's basically I Am Legend versus Fresh Prince. That's that's what it seems like. Um, and in both roles, Smith is fantastic. But, yeah, the production, it, it, it kind of goes downhill from there because the more they try to um, use, utilize the, the CGI to, to enhance the film, the more it detracts from the actual story that they're trying to tell. Um, and they use it so much. I mean, it really is one of those things where after a while, you've seen it so much that you become familiar with it and you'd be able to start seeing, you start to see through the effects. Do you know what I mean? It's as if like sort of your eye becomes trained to see the flaws in the effects because they show way too much of it. In fact, towards the end, there's so much of it that you just think to yourself, like, this, I mean, it's the same people that are behind um, Planet of the Apes. Um, And unfortunately, at the moment, with something like an ape, I guess we're, uh, our minds are less adapt to noticing flaws within ape expressions and, you know, their, their bodily movements and, and what you expect from an ape. I think 
our uh, familiarity with with humans is so much more that they get this kind of uncanny valley thing really really quickly um and the more they use uh, the fake will smith against the real will smith the more it becomes just a distraction um and it's weird like one of the first scenes where they're, they're fighting off against each other is uh in in the darkness and it's really really good but at the same time you can still kind of tell that it's cg sometimes the way they 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 throw each other around is kind of not human and it's noticeable and not only that as well for young will smith uh to make him sound younger they slightly pitch his voice up but it leaves this kind of like almost digital peak or less like almost like a screech at the top of his voice at the high end of his voice that just makes it sound electronic and that's that's disappointing you expect better um but yeah, as as the film kind of goes on, it, it I, I get the feeling there's a much better film in there somewhere. You know, um, because they try to make it so that instead of like um, old Will Smith is trying to kill the young clone, he ends up trying to save him and trying to become like a father figure to him. And that is not as good a film as like every... This clone was devoid of emotion um, and therefore a more effective killer. And the older Will Smith with his humanity is able to win through because his, I don't know, desire to live and preserve life is stronger than the clone's reluctance to accept life to be as a cherished thing that needs to be preserved. I don't know. Basically, what I'm saying is that there were certainly better ideas there, and if I've got two or three, then I don't know why a, a decent film production company can't put one into this film. I just... It started off better than it finished. Um, and unfortunately, it finished really, really, really poorly. So, fingers crossed there's no sequel. But, who knows? If it made money, then that's kind of inevitable. Uh, my last film... Uh, again, we're going back to Joel Schumacher, and a film that we touched on already in this podcast... Tigerland. Now, when it came to reviewing this film, as, I, as with all the films that I review on the podcast, I do try to make sure that I watch them again before I review the film. Uh, because uh, Tigerland came out quite a while ago. I think it was about 20 years ago. And um, I don't really think I've watched it since it came out. But I remember it being a significant film because it was on the back of uh, Joel Schumacher making the Batman films. Um, and I just kind of wanted to see what he would do with a low budget this is quite an indie film it cost about 10 million um but basically joel schumacher directs colin farrell in his breakout performance in this understated indie film um having been lambasted for his batman movies schumacher went back to basics for this gritty war film about a group of army recruits in training before they have to head out to vietnam and he ensured there was none of the luxury of his bigger budget films uh, the actors had no trailers no makeup artists no hairstylists not even chairs were provided. Um, whether this was to get the actors in the roles, um, you know, sort of more used to like sort of being actual trainees and recruits in the army, or whether it's just to save money, it's unclear. But um, anything that added to the reality of this film was worth it because it's it's it is fantastically real in its depiction of this whole situation. Uh, anyway, Farrell plays Boz, 
an anti-war soldier synonymous for helping those not fit for war to get out of the army and get back home to their families. This makes him a target for the hot-headed personnel who feel he's a cancer that affects his squadron with his pessimism and his lack of respect for authority. The reality is he's just not ready to participate in the killing of innocent people at the instruction of his government. Um, his closest friend Paxton, uh, being the opposite of him, by which I mean uh, he volunteered to enlist rather than being drafted, and would go to war knowing that if he didn't, someone else would take his place and die for him. Uh, being well-read and so full of empathy and compassion, Boz knows his is a life that will be wasted in war. As the two bond and philosophise, they see more of themselves in each other than they'd expect. But questioning themselves is often given little to no time as conflicts within their squad escalate more as the promise of war keeps ever closer. Boz wants out, but his compassion for the men he'll leave behind causes more conflict internally than any war could offer. He must decide his future as he fights for the futures of his new brothers-in-arms. Um, and ultimately, he's left with a decision to um, either find a way out or face up to the inevitable and actually go to war. You know, he's someone that's kind of toyed with the idea of running away to, I don't know, Mexico, I think it is, um, and just avoiding a war altogether. But he's part of this platoon that's they're brought down to this place called Tigerland, which is in kind of deep in the South America. I think it's in Florida somewhere. And it's to recreate the kind of hot and sweaty and, you know, muggy situations that they'd find out in Nam. Um But yeah, there, there are many people there that are just not up to it. And um, they're being forced into a situation where they're going to fight in the war, whether they want to or not, whether they're fit to or not. And uh, Boz, with his knowledge of um, army regulations and policies and procedures, he's able to provide these, um, you know, the less well-read, less articulated, less educated ones in the group and how they, they are actually entitled to um, uh, get a dismissal and go home to their families. Um, but as I say, he it, it, all he does is paint a target on his back. And um, there are certain characters along the way that, certainly want to take advantage of that and and you know put a bullet between his eyes um and it's it's a fantastic film because colin farrell is outstanding um he has i mean he's done an american accent in a film quite a number of times but in this one he's got an, he's got a texas accent and it's from from what i can tell it's pretty spot on but hey i'm english you know i'm irish but i'm born and bred in england uh so i wouldn't really know what you know, if there's any flaws to his Texas accent, I, I probably wouldn't be able to hear it. But he gives a, a fantastic performance. And, you know, this is the breakout thing for Colin Farrell. He'd done a couple of small bits. Um, I think he'd been in a couple of episodes about Ballycus Angel in, in, in Britain. Um, and I think he'd had a small part in a Tim Roth film. Uh, but, yeah, this is it. Joel Schumacher liked him, gave him a chance, and it, it really did. It, it, it kick-started his career. And, you know, he's... Everything that he's achieved since then, I think he's um, he's got Joel Schumacher to thank, really. Um, and he's gone on to do huge, huge movies, as I'm sure you're aware, um, including Dumbo, which is where I met him. I, I, I really enjoy this film. It was really great to go back and watch it again, because if anything, it's better than I remember it was. Um, it's currently on Amazon Prime, which is where I watched it. Um, and yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's a, it's a good Nam film, but it never actually gets to Nam. 
Um, and it has amazing performances from characters, um, from actors who, uh, not just Colin Farrell. I mean, there's other actors in this film that went on to do really good things. Um, uh, Clifton Collins Jr. Um, is uh, one of the, the, the squad leader who um, is on the point of having a, a, a mental breakdown whilst being given more and more responsibility. He does an absolutely amazing job in that film. He does an amazing job in lots of films. Um, I, I've, I remember him most not well, one of the things that first comes to mind is he's in Capote with um, uh, your man that looks like me, uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, he's a great actor. But it also has debuts of, of uh, the likes of Michael Shannon um, and Shea Wiggum, uh, who plays um, more of a kind of antagonist in the squadron, who uh, very prejudiced, very backwards in his ways and... Um, just a, a violent and unhinged character that proves to be a, a problem um, for many of the protagonists in this film um, and just many characters in general. Um, but yeah, fantastic, outstanding performances across the board. Some really, really wonderful stuff in this film and it's it's, it's really worth checking out. And I think it's the, it was the perfect way for uh, Joel Schumacher to redeem himself because whilst this was commercially quite a flop, I think it actually only got released in five cinemas across america um the acclaim it's received has uh yeah well it's it's, it's basically restored people's faith in, in joel schumacher and, and the quality of films that he can make um and yeah i i would thoroughly recommend it it's it's um it's a very gripping film it's a very compelling film it asks a lot of questions and i think does a really good job of answering them as well um, and it's a, a beautifully told story, which comes to a, a perfectly apt end. Um, it's it's compared to the other two films that I've watched this week, this one's pretty much flawless, uh, and I, I, you will really really enjoy it. If you like Colin Farrell, um, if you like a good Vietnam film, uh, if you like a good film that just basically touches on humanity and you know the pursuit of all that's important in life and how that can be taken away from you. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of those films that really kind of, it, it resonates in, on many different levels. And for me, it was just very, very enjoyable. I, I just, you know, I'm really glad I watched it again. And, you know, maybe I'll stick it on again at some point. Uh, all filmed on 16mm as well to give it that kind of like grainy, gritty feel. Um, so yeah, from going from the, the stupid, over-the-top um, firework display that was the Batman films, this really shows what a fantastic filmmaker Joel Schumacher was. Um, and he'll be sadly missed because he brought something to this industry that, um, yeah, I think it really needed. Uh, the kind of films that he made were always interesting, um, even when they were not so great there were still talking points. Um, and I think if you're a, a filmmaker like that, then you've, you've, you've had a significant impact on the industry and yeah, a career to be proud of. So rest in peace, Joel Schumacher. Um, and that's pretty much it for this week. Um, yeah, this has been a long podcast, um, but a very, very enjoyable one. And as I say, episode seven, we did it. We got past, um, I would like to see an increase in numbers. I'd like to see that you guys are enjoying this and that you want it to continue. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I, I really do need to see, um, you know, a, well, I don't know. 
I'm going to keep doing it anyway, but I, I really appreciate your support. And if you do find the time to just share it on social media, just you've got a link and you want to share it to your friends, tell a friend about it and, you know, get them to listen. If you can get one person to listen, um, if each one of you does that, that think about it, that doubles my, my audience. Um, yeah. But I appreciate you guys uh, listening every week. Um, as I see, I can see the, the statistics. I can see that people are listening. I can see that people are downloading it and people are coming back to it as well, which is uh, very exciting. Um, I would say most people in England, uh, most of my audience are, are, are based in, in the UK. But I, I see you, the Americans, I see you listening um, in Virginia, in Michigan, in New Jersey, in California, and in New York. Well, I think I know who that is. Um, I appreciate all of you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. I haven't really thought about what I'm going to watch this week. Um, yeah, I have to pick up some films. I'm open to suggest suggestions. Uh, as I say, next week we've got, um, well, we've got Pride Month. Um, and you know what? I've never seen the Sean Penn film Milk. And I know that has a significant story to tell in regards to um, uh, equal rights. So I'm probably going to give that a shout this week. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Fourth of July. I really don't want to watch Independence Day. Nuh-uh. Don't want to watch it. Don't want to watch it. I'm sorry. I know I like Roland Emmerich films, but he's not one of those... I don't know. I don't know. Independence Day. I have a weird story about Independence Day, which I might tell. But I don't know, because I might get arrested. <laughs> um, but yeah. That's that, but that's you know that's pretty much it for this week. Um, just a reminder to everyone, you know, the world is a very scary place sometimes. Um, there's a lot of tension in the world right now. There's a lot of anger and resentment. There's a lot of uh, bitterness and uh, fear, and uh, we need to make sure that um, we're keeping an eye on each other, um, that we're supporting each other, that we're encouraging each other. Uh, that we're showing empathy and compassion at all times and that we're always trying to do the right thing. Um, as Skippy the Magnificent always says, the golden rule, don't be a dick. Now, that's it. Now I've got to wrap it up because this is run over. Um, and as much as I love talking to you people, I guess there's only so much of my voice that you can take. Join me again next week when we'll be doing more movie news, more movie reviews, and who knows, maybe another story about my career history. <laughs> I don't know. Peace, love, empathy, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>